Well, do keep your Bibles open so you can check that what I say comes from the Bible and not from my imagination. There have been, in the course of human history, many attempts to establish on earth some kind of utopia. That utopian vision has usually ended, as it did, for example, with France, France's vision of egality and fraternity and liberty in a bloody revolution. That vision of a common communalism, a sharing of what we have with one another that was Marxism ended in 40 million people being killed in Soviet Russia. And perhaps closer to home, many of the visions of a utopian society where there is freedom, life and health and the pursuit of happiness. Perhaps that utopian vision too is on its way out. The reality is, of course, that no utopia built on the efforts of men, no utopia dependent on the goodwill of society will ever succeed because men and women are fallen and because society is corrupt. Isaiah the prophet has painted a picture in chapter 60 of a perfect world. It is a perfect world. It is the forever future that God has planned and promised to His people. A day that's coming when God's rule will be fully displayed, God's people will be truly home, and the earth, the environment, the universe will be fully renewed. That time will come as God has promised. He has reminded us again and again of the certainty of that time, and yet that time has not yet come. At the end of chapter 60, as he has given this beautiful picture of this perfect world in which all is peace and all is good, and everyone is good, and evil is banished. He gives us his signature at the end of the chapter, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the promise-making, promise-keeping Lord of the covenant. In its time, I will hasten it. In other words, this isn't the time yet. This isn't the moment. It has not come yet. But when its time comes, it will not be slow. Now, this vision of a perfect future is possible only if it is built not on us, no matter how enlightened our society may be, not on us, but it is, only, it is only possible if it is built on the one who is described now in chapter 61. That's the movement of Isaiah. Isaiah is saying to us here, this perfect future, this forever future for the people of God, is possible only as a result of the mission of the one who's introduced now in chapter 61. In fact, if you look at verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2, you will find what the mission is. The mission of this individual is to bring about the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That description points us to the end of history. It points us to our future, not just Isaiah's future, but to our future when God brings history to a conclusion. 
On that day, there will be a day of vengeance, the vengeance of our God. Isaiah will return to that in chapter 63 and describe what that looks like. But between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, between those two points, we find ourselves this morning in that interim period between the promise and the fulfillment, between favor and judgment. We find ourselves this morning with the spotlight falling on the one who will bring it all to pass. In this chapter, we hear several voices speaking, and the material is, is gathered around those several voices. The first one is easy to identify. If you read verses 1 to 7, you'll hear the voice of the Messiah. Now, as often happens when a prophet is caught up into the heavenlies and is in the Spirit and able to hear what's going on in the heavenly realms, that we find the prophet here speaking in the dramatic character or persona of a divine speaker. This divine speaker is a herald. He is a herald of good news, and his identity is not clear until the point at which he makes an appearance on the earthly scene. Listen to his words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord God is the sovereign Lord. The covenant-making, promise-keeping God, the Almighty God of the Exodus, who saves His people, rescuing them, and avenges Himself on His enemies. The Lord God is the sovereign, the Savior, and the judge. It is the Spirit of this Lord God, this Almighty God, that lies upon, rests upon the speaker here. Who is this one? Why is the anointed, why is the Spirit of God anointing this one to work the works of God and speak the words of God? Who is speaking? We discover there's something of extraordinary importance about this person. The Spirit of the Lord God rests upon him. The Lord has anointed him. The Greek word is the word Christed. So he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He has sent me. Now, in the Bible, that language of the one who is sent, the one who is Christed, the one who is anointed by God, the one who has the Holy Spirit resting upon him in fullness, that one is quite clearly the Messiah. In fact, you can't, by the way, you can't avoid the Trinitarian influence there in verse 1. There you have the Lord God, there you have the Spirit, and there you have this speaker, this anointed speaker, on whom the Holy Spirit of God rests in all His fullness. Now, one of the things we've noticed as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, and we're now on the way out, the end is nigh. There are only 66 chapters, unfortunately, in the book, so 61 gives you a clue that the end is near. But there have been a number of tributaries that have flowed into the, into the river that, that identifies God's promised person in the future. There was early on the, the introduction to a divine king who's coming, a messianic king who'd be anointed, but a divine king, a king who, although he is descended from David and will be born, physically born, 
of a woman born of a virgin, in fact, Isaiah says, has divine honors. He has divine names, and divine names signify the character and identity of the person. He is the wonderful counsel of the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's a divine king. There's also the divine messenger, the one in chapter 40, for example, who comes. Uh, He is the one about whom his forerunner speaks. He comes with a message. He comes to speak peace to Jerusalem and peace to those who are far away. This divine messenger, whom the, the speaker at the beginning of Isaiah 40 introduces to us in these words, Behold, look, your God. He comes to speak the gospel. He also comes as the suffering servant, the servant who will bear sin, endure wrath, take punishment in order to bring His people into a right relationship with God. Those are the three tributaries that flow into the identity of the one about whom Isaiah is now writing. And the interesting thing that links these three characters is that there are there are elements that are, that are identified with each one of them. For example, the divine king in Isaiah 11 has the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. And although he's a king, he helps the poor and the meek just as this individual here does, and his mouth, his speech is so significant that he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he kills the wicked. A powerful speaker as well, and has the Spirit resting upon him. In Isaiah 52, the divine messenger who comes to announce peace as a messenger of good news who announces salvation also has the Spirit resting upon him. He says this, from the beginning I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there, and now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. The servant is identified in chapter 42. Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. So add up those three things. Follow those three tributaries, and they end up with this one figure who is the divine king, the divine messenger, and the divine servant. This was the great theological breakthrough that Isaiah of Jerusalem achieved in the eighth century before Christ. That the Messiah would be a king from David's line. He would be the Lord's anointed Messiah. He would be in the line of David. He would reign forever. He would be a preacher of the gospel, and he would suffer in the place of his people. That's the figure that is presented here. And at the beginning of His public ministry, our Lord Jesus went into the synagogue there in Nazareth, His hometown, and the leader of the synagogue handed Him the scroll for the reading of that day, and He took the scroll as if to read it and began by reading this scroll from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And when He had finished speaking, He rolled up the scroll And he handed it to the leader of the synagogue, and he sat down, and all the eyes and in the synagogue were fixed upon him, the Scripture says, and he began to say to them, today, 
Is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing? Isaiah the prophet, caught up into the heavenly realms by the Spirit, hears in his day the words of the Messiah speaking. He hears the Messiah's voice. Here is the Messiah's Son self-consciously speaking of His anointing by the Spirit of the Lord His Father. And there in Nazareth, after His baptism where He was ritually purified, after the Spirit descended from heaven in a very public way that people noticed all around as the Spirit descended upon Him, as a voice was heard encouraging Him from the language of Isaiah and from the language of David, There, as he said about his ministry, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus now announces the beginning of his mission. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And he's come to preach the year of the Lord's favor. That's why Jesus came into the world. Now, interestingly, Jesus stops where Isaiah stops. Isaiah gives us the whole story here. The year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Isaiah says nothing about that second part. Not until chapter 63. Similarly, the Lord Jesus stops in the middle of that statement. He stops with the words to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus wants to concentrate on this period, this extended period, this year, this long period of grace and favor in which you and I find ourselves this morning. That is not to say that he will not talk about the day that's coming, the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God. He will. But right now, he says to the people of his day that he had come into the world at that point not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus never denies that that day of vengeance will come. In fact, he tells us who the judge will be on that day of vengeance, that last day of human history. Jesus says, John 5, he has given, God the Father has given all authority to execute judgment to him, to Jesus, because he is the Son of of man. And no one said more than Jesus did about what that day of vengeance would involve, a day of wrath and fury, of anguish and distress, of judgment and destruction of the godless. But Jesus contrasts that day, which is not this day, with the year of favor of our God. You are privileged this morning to sit in this room in the year of our Lord's favor. This is a day of salvation. This is not that day, though that day will come. Today is the day you may hear the good news and believe it and receive it and find everlasting life. That's the joy of this. When Jesus came for that year of favor, when He began His work, the sign that accompanied His arrival was the swaddling clothes, the baby's clothes in which He was wrapped. When He comes that second time, the sign will not be His swaddling clothes, but His glory, the glory of God. He will come 
shrouded in the glory of God, and every eye shall see him. Even those who pierced him will look upon him whom they pierced. In fact, this is Jesus' own words. At the end of history, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But I'm here this morning to announce to you this is not that day. This is a day in which God mercifully postpones that judgment in order to establish a covenant, an agreement of grace, including you. There is a stay of execution for humanity. Today, grace is operative all the time. In humanity at large, we have what we call common grace. It doesn't get you to heaven, but it's a sign of God's favor and God's love to everybody. Not everybody is living in Syria today or in Baghdad today under the reign of ISIS. That is a sign of God's common grace. Those, those kind of extreme events remind us that generally speaking, most people aren't living in those conditions, that there is civility, that there is pleasantness, that there is niceness, that there is love, that there is some degree of harmony, although easily broken, nonetheless, it's there. And that is God's holding back the wickedness that is inherent in our hearts. Take that control away, and it would all be unleashed. Communist Russia, fascist Germany, Marxist China during the revolution. Take away the constraints of God, and life would be unlivable in this day. But by and large, enjoy this. Human beings enjoy this day of common grace. But don't waste this day. This is a day of favor, a day in which you can hear about the saving grace of God. When it talks about the year of the Lord's favor, it, it talks about an extended time in which you may come to enjoy God's saving work, God's salvation. Every 50 years in Judaism, there was the year of Jubilee, which is what this refers to. Every 50th year, the ram's horns would sound and at the sound of the ram's horns, every debt would be canceled, every slave would be freed, all property would be returned to its original owner. And that is precisely what this preacher promises to do. Jesus used these words, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. This is good news. This is good news. Look, look at how he spells it out. It's good news for the poor. In the book of Isaiah, this word poor is not used exclusively of the economically poor. Actually, mostly it's, it's used of people in their approach to and understanding of their relationship with God. The poor are people who know they have nothing. They know that they have nothing to barter with or bargain with. They have no means of negotiation. They cannot get themselves out of debt. They owe God, but they cannot repay God. They are spiritually impoverished. We find the Lord Jesus using 
this very chapter of Isaiah is a kind of script for his own public preaching ministry. His great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, was an example of his great preaching ministry. Where does he begin? Well, he begins where this chapter begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the only people who are part of the kingdom of heaven are people who realize that when it comes to their relationship with God, they have nothing, nothing that they can bargain with. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And those who know their poverty inevitably mourn. That is, they grieve over the reason why they've got nothing to bring. They, they grieve over their sin. Sin has brought this problem. Sin is the debt I owe to God. Which is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew, forgive us our debts. The English think the Scots made up that word, by the way, because they, they always like to caricature Scottish as mean. Uh, having worked in Scotland, there's probably an element of truth in that, but that's another matter altogether. But the mourners are those who know why they're poor. They have nothing that they can negotiate with before God, so they are poor in spirit. And God promises that they should be comforted. Jesus says in His sermon, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted of God. And you see, He goes on to expound what this means, that instead of grief and mourning and heaviness, there'll be the oil of gladness, the garment of praise. That's what God is in the business of doing. And he describes what he's going to do with them. He's going to make them righteous. He's going to make them oaks of righteousness. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount said, "'Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled.'" A little later down here, we find them that a promise made that, that the people would be restored to their land and be given back all that they'd lost. And in verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, you shall rejoice in your lot. In your land, you will possess a double portion, and you shall have everlasting joy. Jesus says, the meek, that is those who are happy for other people to think of them the way they confess to God that they are. I say, I'm a sinner. I might not want you to call me a sinner, but if I'm meek, then I don't mind, because I realize that, in fact, when you call me a sinner, you're saying the truth. And when you tell me I'm a failure, you're saying the truth, because I know what I am before God. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus is saying, when He quotes this, or when Isaiah quotes Him, in fact, Irenaeus and Tertullian and Oregon, Origen, the, uh, the early church fathers, put it like this, that here the Lord Jesus Himself, speaking as Himself through Isaiah, says. Here is the words of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah is bringing them to, to us 700 years or so before Jesus comes into the world. And He's saying that Jesus comes to deal with with the issues, the issues of our spirit, our brokenness, the, the broken world we live in, and all the implications that has for us. I don't know how you've come to church this morning. I don't know if you're aware of, 
of issues in your life. I don't know whether your life is broken in one form or another, whether deep inside you you harbor a a sense of brokenness or or bitterness even. And here the Lord Jesus claims to deal with those things. He claims to deal with them because He goes to the very heart of it. He puts us right with God and begins a process of freeing us from our past, freeing us from our bondage, freeing us from our bitterness, freeing, freeing us from those memories that, that are destructive. Jesus is in this business. And He wants to do something else. He announces a new name and a new status. They shall be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. You and I don't make ourselves like this. Notice the pronunciation of a name. They are given the name. This is a gift that's given to them. They're put in this position of righteousness. They are the planting of the Lord. In other words, this is all of God's doing. This is not something we cooperate with. This is not God and me in partnership. This is not us, you know, playing a game that we used to play when we had a three-legged race and you tied one leg to, the, to a partner, and you had to run down the field with your adjacent legs tied together in a three-legged race. Weird people do weird things. But that's not a picture of your life with God, cooperating with God, trying your best to kind of keep up with Him. This is all of God. Do you notice this? Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord… Why? That He may be glorified. There is no place in Christianity for me being glorified and God being glorified at the same time. It doesn't work like that. It's all of God. And in fact, this work of God goes further. It brings into the Israel of God, it brings foreigners and strangers and makes them part and parcel of the people of God. It makes them priests, verse 6 of God and ministers of God. The Bible knows nothing of a formal outward priesthood in the New Covenant church. Every believer is a priest before God. Every believer can approach God as a priest coming straight into the presence of God. Every believer needs only one mediator between God and man. You don't need a mediator and a mediatrix. You only need the mediator who has been revealed, the one man, the man Christ Jesus, who can bring you right into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, you receive this ultimately, receive this beautiful utopia, this beautiful land, this renewed new heavens and new earth that is promised, and you will have everlasting joy. Verse 7. That's what you get with Jesus. This is what the Lord Jesus came into the world to do. It's a program far bigger than merely kind of false words or easy words or imagination can come up with. He's come to transform a people and make them ready to live in that new heaven and new earth. So there's the voice of the Messiah announcing His mission. He's come, first of all, to preach, proclaim the Word of God, the good news, the year of the Lord's favor. 
Well, have you heard that news and responded to it? Do you believe in it? Do you believe in the Messiah? Have you trusted in Him? All the weight of God's authority comes with Him. Look at verses 8 and 9. We hear another voice here. He identifies Himself. For I, the Lord, that is, I, Yahweh, love justice. Here's the voice of the Lord confirming to believers that all that's been announced by Jesus the Messiah is the Word of God and is established on His mission and will be accomplished. The key is in the start of verse 8, I, the Lord, love justice. What he's saying is all the promises made by the Messiah are guaranteed by the character of God, a God who loves justice. You say, well, I can understand the justice of God demonstrated on the final day, the day of judgment. And there are times when I read in the newspaper or see on the television some atrocity that I wish God in His justice would come right now. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not yet. Because then there would be justice for everybody. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. For He is a consuming fire. No, when he says that this is all established in justice, he's saying this, it would be just if I wiped out humanity, but here I am offering through the Messiah and His message, I'm, I'm offering pardon and forgiveness. It is one of the great lessons of the New Testament that God is able to resolve this problem. I understand how God can be just in punishing sin in me and in others. How can God be just and forgive me? That is the real problem that the New Testament addresses. And the answer of the New Testament, and the answer actually of Isaiah, is that God has addressed this issue by Himself, sending the Messiah into the world by coming Himself in Christ, and by taking your place and by carrying your sins, and by enduring the penalty and punishment due to you in Himself, in your place, in order to establish justice so that God can remain just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. It's an amazing thing that in order to back up his argument, for what we think of as the love of God, he should point to the justice of God. God, in doing it, has demonstrated His justice towards us. He's backing up. You notice, what has He done? He's made an everlasting covenant. He says, I will faithfully give them their recompense. Here is Jesus. He's paid the price. What is the recompense for those whose price and debt has been dealt with? What is the recompense? The reward. They have nothing left to pay. The debt has been canceled. We read about that. Canceled on the cross. What is the recompense of the reward? It is this everlasting covenant. God's arrangement, signed and sealed and underwritten by Almighty God Himself, that is everlasting and can never be undone. God puts the weight 
of his authority behind the words of the servant. Then lastly, we have verses 10 and 11. Oh, my. (sighs) If you read some commentaries, you'll find that verses 10 and 11 are meant to be, in the view of some, the voice of the redeemed. That is, those who benefit from the work of the servant. I was kind of playing with that most of the week, as you do when you're me. And, uh, but there were some problems. I'm going to share these problems with you now just so that you get a, a clue as to how my thinking was going. First of all, take the language. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness. We've heard that language before, back in fact, chapter 59, verse 17, where we find the Lord God Himself going to battle on behalf of His people, wearing righteousness and salvation. Now, there would, it would be, I think, appropriate for us to say that since this servant has been sent by God, that God has sent him with salvation to give to people and righteousness to deal with the problem between God and man. But would that be the right interpretation? Follow with me. Verse 10 in the middle of this. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, In Isaiah, whenever the church, whenever the people of God are speaking or being addressed, typically the church is described in feminine terms. Isaiah will refer to her as the bride of Yahweh. The New Testament does the same, doesn't it? It interprets, it it describes the church of Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. It prefers the feminine form describing the corporate people of God. So, in this passage, on whom lies the focus? The focus is on the bridegroom here, the bridegroom who is dressed as a priest with the headdress of a priest. You can pick out the symbolism of this if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 1, where John, in the Spirit, in a prophetic vision like this, sees the Lord Jesus in His risen splendor and glory, and He's dressed like the high priest, and He has the high priest's turban on His head. That's the picture we have painted here. This bridegroom is the high priest. In other words, what I think we have here in verses 10 and 11 is we're going back to the servant. We're going back to the servant speaking. And we're hearing the servant saying, I will greatly rejoice. In the Lord my soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. You think of Jesus praying in His high priestly prayer. Interestingly, we call it that in John 17. You have granted the Son of Man authority over all flesh that He might give eternal life to those that you have given to Him. God has given to Him the garments of salvation, covered Him 
with the robe of righteousness. The Redeemer is, to whom, is the one to whom the Father has delegated the task of providing salvation for His people and dealing with the righteousness problem. We are all unrighteousness. God is all righteousness. Jesus is all righteous. But He dies in my place and deals with the unrighteousness problem between me and God. What drives him to that task? I will greatly rejoice. Why is he rejoicing? He's rejoicing that he will have his bride beside him at the end of verse 10. He's rejoicing for the wedding day, in the wedding day, when he as our prince and our savior and our heavenly husband, as it were, shall have his bride, the church of God, the people of God, standing by His side, sharing in the splendor of that occasion. That's what He has in mind. If you look at verse 11, it talks about sprouts and what's sown sprouting up and God causing righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. There it's talking about the, the fruit of His work, the effects of His work. The people who will be infected and affected by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Why is he full of joy? The writer to the Hebrews tells us. For the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Christ? Was it of being exalted? He had always been exalted. Was it the joy of sitting on his Father's throne? He had always sat on his Father's throne. He did not give up his deity when he took on our humanity. He continued to reign and rule and support and hold up everything by the very word of His power in His deity while humbling Himself in our humanity. What was the joy then? It was the joy of bringing many children with Him into that glory, of bringing men and women, boys and girls, such as we are, into that glory that was His and sharing His glory with them. I will, Father, that those whom You have given Me be with Me where I am and see My glory. He is looking forward to that wedding day. You notice how close the bride is. She comes out of nowhere in the text. He is covered and clothed as a bridegroom, decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride, she is there with him. She is standing beside him. She is adorned with her jewels. She is, she is sharing in the splendor of the occasion. But her joy and her position is in her relationship to this one, this Messiah, this Savior, this God. It's looking forward to the wedding we were made for. And on that day, in the words of an old hymn, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I shall not gaze on glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown He gives me, but on His pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory. 
of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have given us a very clear gospel word today, that it is none other than your Son, the Lord Jesus, who came to proclaim good news to those who knew themselves impoverished before you, for those who struggle with their own weakness and sin, for those who feel they've lost everything. You promised them that they would gain the world. We pray that today those here who don't know you would find you, and that all of us, Lord, together would rejoice in the fullness of salvation that's found in our Lord Jesus alone. For your glory and in his name we pray. Amen.